So we are in the, the Gospel of Mark. We've been there for a while, and um, I feel like it's been forever since I've uh, been here. <laughs> it's only, I only missed one Sunday because I was preaching uh, in Santa Fe, at Santa Fe, one of our sister churches, and it was really good. It's a revitalization work down there. That church went through a similar situation where Bethel, they had just kind of dwindled down to just a few people and just seemed stuck. And then God brought them a young new pastor named Lucas Campbell, and he went in there, and he's rebuilding the place, and it's growing again, and it's doing really good. And that's great because Santa Fe needs some more good Bible-believing churches down there, and especially ones that have life in them. Also, um, uh, I'm flying solo this weekend, so anybody who wants to join me for lunch, me, Don, and Karen are going to go to lunch. If you want to join us, please. I'd love to have some more company. That'd be great. Um, so we're going to... We, uh, it, we were last week we were in Mark chapter 6 and it was the greatest miracle Jesus ever did based on what Mark and John and the other gospels tell us about it besides the resurrection the feeding of the 5000 said who Jesus was that he was the the prophet to come that's what the scripture said i was so excited about preaching that 2 weeks ago that when i went when they asked me to preach in Santa Fe i just preached that exact same message again cuz i just thought it was so necessary and it was easy to do, right? <laughs> why, why, why reinvent the wheel? So follow along on the screen here for me. Hope you all can see that. And Lauren's out of the way. Thank you, Lauren. Great. <laughs> You're good looking, but man, we, we wanted to see. It's good. It's fine. So uh, Mark chapter 6, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, the other side of the sea, that is, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And, he, and after he had had uh, taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, talking about the disciples in the boat, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they saw, I'm sorry, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And let's all read this last verse together. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we need your help this morning because the scripture is a tool of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit needs to make these truths uh, real to our minds and our hearts so that we can receive what God is saying to us this morning. So Lord, help us this morning to fall more in love with Jesus. That, that's the bottom line of all this, Lord. Less of us, more of him. In this church, in our families, in this community, and let it begin with our own hearts. Lord, we get so consumed with our own ideas, our own plans, our own values of what's right and wrong. Lord, I pray that you just would shatter all that and help us to start over with you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. To this day, the worst national, natural disaster in the, in the world uh, is the Galveston Storm of 1900. They don't know, they don't even really have an accurate body count because back then they couldn't keep track of those things and records weren't very accurate. But they say as many as 12,000 people died in Galveston because of that storm. 
They didn't have, you know, radar and things like that that we have today where we can watch the weather and know to evacuate. They were just there thinking this is another storm. And just thousands and thousands and thousands of bodies were swept into the ocean to the Gulf of Mexico. Just crazy. And this storm snuck up on them because they didn't have this forewarning. And in the Sea of Galilee, uh, where Jesus and these disciples were, storms would come up like that really fast. Even the best of sailors and fishermen could be taken by surprise, as you saw not just once, but twice in the Gospels. What's, what's Mark's favorite word? You, you probably know this by now. What did Mark say 41 times in this short little book? Immediately. Immediately. If you really, if, if Christianity is new to you, if you're watching online and you're like, I really don't know if I believe in Jesus. If maybe you're a young person here this morning and you're like, man, I'm being taught by my friends that the Bible and Jesus isn't real, but I don't really know and I'm kind of questioning. That's great. You're in the right place to be questioning whether the Bible is true, okay? That's not a problem. We, we, we can work with that. I really recommend you read the Gospel of Mark because he gets to the point. <laughs> immediately this happened, immediately this happened. You know, if you're the kind of person like, hey, just get through all this fluff and get to the bottom line. Just tell me about it. Mark says, Jesus is God, and he's here to save you. He just cuts right to it immediately as he focuses on those things. And it says he made his disciples. He's, and, and the word here made means like, it's like, okay, guys, go, go, please, go. And, but back up and think, what's, what's already happened prior to this? Jesus and his disciples were so tired from being worn out from healing and feeding thousands of people. They needed a break. And when he went to get a break, the crowd followed him there. So he said, hey, guys, you're just going to have to get in the boat and go. Okay? And you guys take a break. I'll take care of the crowd. And how many people are in this crowd? You know, we said maybe possibly 20,000 people. How does one man dismiss a crowd of 20,000? When they are wanting, it says in another gospel, they want to take him by force and say, no, you're going to be the king. And we're going to force you to tell the Romans to get out. You're so popular that if you will step up and tell the word, people will revolt and take up swords and kick the Romans out. And so, but he, being Jesus, he does what he does and he dismisses this crowd. And after he had taken leave of the crowd, he went up on the mountain. It didn't just say a mountain. There was a particular place Jesus went to pray. And everybody knew this is where he went to pray. And Jesus being 100% God, but yet at the same time, 100% man, he needed to pray. So if Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, needs time to get away into a quiet place and pray, Gary does too. And all of us do. Okay? Let me tell you, one of the biggest challenges about your prayer life is not when to pray and not what to pray, but where to pray. If you will pick a place for prayer, and Jesus talked about you know, a prayer closet, which isn't the closet way we think of. It was an inner room where pretty much only the husband and wife and a few other intimate people went. You went to that innermost room of the house to where no one else, the servants weren't around, your kids weren't around. You went there to pray. Pick a place to pray. And you know what? There was a point in time in my life where you, my, the seat of my car was the best place to pray. Because what I'd do is I'd get in the car, I'd go to work, and I'd try to get there early, and I'd sit in the parking lot with the car, you know, with the radio just playing something worshipful, and I would pray right there in my car because I knew there I would not be interrupted. And I don't care if it's your back patio on your porch in your backyard, or it's a, a bench down the street at the park, 
But pick a place to where you can go on a regular basis, especially when times are tough, especially when storms come in unexpectedly, where you can go to pray. And that would, be, that would solve a lot of your problems. And so by going to pray on a mountain, Jesus got a higher view of things, literally and figuratively. Because it says Jesus sees them on the, on the sea having a difficult time. How did he see them out in the middle of the sea? Because he was up on a higher view. Let me tell you something. When we're down in the valley of life, we really can't see what's going on. And we're like, man, no, why is God allowing this? But God has a better perspective than we do. And when we go up on the mountain to pray, we will have a better perspective of life. And we'll see things in the macro instead of in the micro. When you look at things in the micro, it just doesn't look like this is fair. And like, how am I ever going to get out of this? And where's the money going to come from? Blah, 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 blah. But when you pull back and you pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done. And get your eyes off your little feeble self. Everything changes. So Jesus is up there figuratively seeing things from a different perspective. He's literally seeing things from a, a different perspective. And then, he's, I believe, in my opinion, he's praying. It says he went there to pray. I believe he's praying for the disciples. He just sent them into a boat. Well, if you remember the last time we were in a boat, <laughs> it didn't go so well. They thought they were going to die. And they really chewed Jesus out for taking a nap while the boat's taking on water and tossing and turning, and they think they're about to go under, you know. So he's praying that, hey, Lord, they're out there in the boat. They're probably scared because the last time they almost lost their lives. That's why I had to make them get in the boat, part of it. And I'm praying you give them strength to realize I'm just as much with them now on this mountaintop as I was when I was on the cushion at the stern of the boat. And that's what we have to realize is Jesus is with us always. Isn't that what Jesus says? We, we get this perception because we're so religious that Jesus is more in this building than he is in your car. That's, is that true? <laughs> no, that's not true. That Jesus is more, you know, up here where all this is going on than he is in your kitchen. No, that's, obviously, that, none of that's true. We have to get the perception Jesus is always right there with us. Isn't that what he promised? That, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Even if this world blows up, I'm with you. That's a great promise. Number one, it should give us amazing assurance. Man, that could dispel a whole lot of panic attacks. That could dispel a whole lot of stress and nail-biting and worrying over nothing. But number two, you know what else it'll do? It'll get rid of a whole lot of sin. It is super tough to watch porn if you think Jesus is sitting right next to you. It is super tough to gossip when Jesus is standing right there going, Oh, really? <laughs> Well, I haven't heard that one either, <laughs> because I don't think that one's true. And even if it is true, you know, there's a whole lot of sin. You would be a whole lot more respectful to your wife or your husband with your tone and your words if you realize Jesus is in the kitchen too. Man, it, if, what does it say? That, that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what is the fear of the Lord? Knowing that His holiness is always with us. And think about this. And we'll go to another deeper level. Not only is Jesus right there with us in every situation, at the restaurant, at work, on the commute, he's not only with us here, he is with us here. I mean, he is inside and out. He is everywhere. And so you take him with you everywhere, which will be a great thing to give you assurance, but also it ought to make you, us live holy lives. And then number three, after his greatest miracle... Jesus finds himself, I really need to pray. Man, he should be walking around strutting. Man, I just fed 20,000. Boom. You know, look at me. I'm amazing. But he's like, man, God, the Father, I need help. 
I, I need your strength to do whatever I do. And you know what we're tempted to do as human beings when we have great success, and man, we just nailed it. Like, let's say we nailed a song up here, or at work, you just got a promotion. You know what the last thing you may be thinking about is? Prayer. But do you realize after your raise, after your honeymoon, after your grandchildren being born, you are as much desperate then as you were when you're on your face thinking, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills, or I just got fired, or whatever it may be. Don't ever let the mountaintops get you so high that you don't think you need to pray. In fact, that's when you need to pray more desperately than ever. And it says, and when evening came, so he was teaching these people all day. They probably didn't have breakfast or lunch. And now it's getting close to dinner. So he feeds them. Then he puts the disciples out in a boat out on the sea and he dispels the crowd. And now the sun's going down and the boat was out on the sea. So again, they're sailing at night in a scary situation, and they're on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So he's in a secure place, but he's asking them to venture out and to do something without them, without him. And God may be asking you to venture out and do something that you may feel like you're on your own or something new. You may have to quit a job that you've been at for a long time. It's sense security. God wants you to do something new, venture into a new place, a new territory, and he's given you the courage to do that. And it says, and he saw, again, from this mountaintop. Now, a lot of people, you'll see pictures. If you Google pictures of Jesus walking on the water in the story, it has Jesus glowing. And some people say, well, that's why they thought he was a ghost. Well, maybe he was glowing. I'm not gonna, there's nothing in the passage that says he was. But there is something in Scripture that says this. this in, the, in the Gospel of John, it says this was at the time of Passover. Well, Passover is celebrated with the full moon. So it's very, you've been out on a full moon and you can walk around. It's like the streetlights are on. You can be out in the middle of nowhere, but on a full moon, you can see a lot. I think that's why they saw him and he saw them. And Jesus up on the mountain with a full moon could see them. I'm not trying to explain away the miraculous. You understand what I'm saying? I just don't think we, we should put the miraculous in there where it wasn't. But he, whether it's because he was glowing or, they, or he just see him because he's God. They, anyway, he saw that they were making headway, which means they're making progress but it's killing them. <laughs> They're doing it painfully. You ever been there? You're, like, you're making progress. You're doing good in your job, but it's, it's taking all you have. You may be making progress in your marriage, but man, you feel like it's about to kill you. You may be making progress with your kids, but you feel like it's going to take every ounce of strength you have to make them turn out normal. Amen? I know the Medinas are saying amen, right? Okay? We, we, uh, it, 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 it's headway, but man, it's painfully. But God sees you. That, that right there is, is worth everything. You know, sometimes you feel like you're just doing all on your own or like there's no strength, but God sees you. He, he sees you, you, know, you schooling your kids and you disciplining your kids and, and loving on your grandkids and doing all that you're trying to do to be a godly parent and grandparent, but he sees it. And that right there makes it, he knows that there's nothing happening that's outside of his control and he's with you through that situation. But he, they're making, I will give credit Let's give kudos to the disciples. Last time they were in a the boat, they almost died. Now they're in another storm. This is a different type of storm. The, word, the Greek word means it's basically like a windstorm. Okay? So it may not even be raining, but the wind is just prevailing against them, and they're in a sailboat. So now they're having to row to get through it instead of using the sail because it's rowing against them. They could have said, you know what? The last time we did this, we almost died. Let's turn around and go back. Why didn't they? Because Jesus told them to. Think about that. They could have said, well, this is not God's will. No, you heard him. He said, get in the boat, guys. Go, go, get to the other side. 
And even though everything seemed to be working against them, they made progress. It was painful progress. So don't think that painful progress means it's not God's will. No pain, what? No gain. God uses the scripture. Man, thank you, Nathan, for reading these scriptures. What does it say? Suffering develops character. God doesn't want everything to be easy for you. Okay? Um, I coach uh, Isaiah's basketball team, and we normally have seven guys on the team. Well, we lost one guy to injury. He hasn't been with, with us in this tournament the whole weekend. And then one guy out of the blue doesn't even come. We have five guys against a team that has 12 that does a full-court press the whole game. I had no subs. In fact, we had to, because it's a homeschool league, we pulled up, it's a 14 and, 13 and 14-year-old league, we pulled up three 12-year-olds just to give the guys a breather. And these five guys worked their tails off and made headway painfully and beat this team 64 to 34. Five guys, and they played to the last minute like they weren't even tired. You know why? Because we ran their butts in practice like they were about to die. And in practice, they're like, <laughs> I can't do anymore, coach. Come on. I'm like, no, go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And because we made things hard for them in practice, this game was nothing. And they whooped that team. And so it, it, uh, anyway, it says that the wind was against them. And there would seem that in times in your life that the wind is against you. And the, the very God who said, peace be still, didn't this time. He's up on the mountain watching them making headway painfully, and he's letting it happen for their good. Life is hard, right? Can I get an amen? <laughs> life is hard. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. But if you're a Christian, you get to do a hard life with Jesus than without Jesus. I'd rather do hard life with Jesus holding my hand than hard life wondering, why is all this happening to me, and have no eternal perspective whatsoever. Um, Jesus could have calmed the wind. He could have. Why didn't he? Why did Jesus choose not to this time? Why does God allow storms in our lives? Let me give you some, a biblical perspective. In fact, there are five storms with boats in the storm in the Bible. Do you know that? Hey, uh, let's see. Can you help me with those? How many of, can you name a, a boat in a storm in the Bible? Tell me. Noah's Ark. If we go chronologically, someone else said another one. Jonah. Right? What else? Paul. Paul was shipwrecked how many times? Three. And I just learned something this week. When Corinthians says he was shipwrecked three times, when Corinthians was written, the book of Acts chapter 27 says he was in a storm again, which was written after this. So that means three plus one is four. Four times shipwrecked. You think Paul would have enough sense to get off boats. Okay? But he's courageous. Okay? And then, of course, we've already mentioned the previous time that the disciples were in the boat. Okay? So we've got all of those right there. Um, Noah's Ark, which is a boat. Jonah's boat. The disciples when Jesus was asleep with them in the boat. And then the disciples this time without Jesus. And then Paul's ship being wrecked again multiple times. He tells us in detail about one of those. So let's talk about each one of those and what they teach us. First of all, Noah's storm was for protection. Noah's storm was for protection. What was God doing? He was destroying the whole earth. In a storm. But what did God do? He put Jonah, I mean Noah, in this ark, this boat, and put a storm all around him, protect him so that he wouldn't be lost with all the rest of the. You know, it's estimated that there was eight billion people on the planet at that time. 
If you do the math from Adam to Noah and the, how long people lived into the hundreds of years and how having babies was not something they tried not to do. They were continually doing talks about how many kids they had. The, the earth's population could have been that because that's a number, but that's, that's a lot of people that are dead and gone. And how many people are left? Eight. But God used that storm to judge the world, but, but the boat to protect Noah from judgment. Did you, know, did you know that things can go around the world where God is judging everybody around you, but he'll put you in a safe place? He won't take you out of the storm, but he'll give you a boat to be in the storm and to protect you with. And that's what he did for Noah. Um, let's see here. So 1 Peter 3.20 says, When God's patience waited in the days of Noah... While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Noah's ark was for his own protection. Jonah's storm was for correction. For correction. The problem this time wasn't that God was, take, was disciplining the world. This time he's disciplining God's prophet. This prophet was a racist. He's like, I don't want to go talk to those Ninevites. I want them to go to hell. And I know that if I go down there and tell them the gospel, you're going to save them, God. And I don't want them saved. So I'm going to get in a boat and I'm going to go the exact opposite way. I'm going to sail in an incredibly different direction because I don't want those people to get saved. Proverbs 3.11 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of Jehovah, nor be weary of his what? Correction. For whom Jehovah loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. So, wasn't it cool to hear Caleb going, Daddy, Daddy, when David's up here playing the drums? That's something you miss if you're at home. You need to be here to hear all that cool stuff. And Caleb's over there just going crazy and stuff like that. But there are times that Caleb, because he's really like his dad, will do things he shouldn't do. Right, Daisy? And he will reach for something that it might hurt him. And you got to go, no, no. And he'll look at you and go, because he's stubborn like his dad. And you got to take his hand and go and smack his hand. Now, does Daisy smack Caleb's hand because she hates him? No, she does it because she loves him. And if you are a child of God and you stray and start touching things you shouldn't be touching and looking at things you shouldn't be looking at and saying things you shouldn't be saying, God's going to say, stop that. And he's going to correct you, not because he hates you, because he loves you. And here Jonah was having a rebellious heart. So God says, okay, you're in a boat trying to get away from me. I'm going to use that boat in a storm to correct you to discipline you, to get your heart right. Um, you know, uh, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. God's judgment in the Bible and his discipline is, is like sunlight. And what happens, whether it makes you better or whether it makes you bitter, is your choice. You can have it melt your heart and say, okay, God, you're right. Or you can harden your heart and say, no, I'm, not, I'm still not giving in. I don't care how much you discipline me, God. We've, and I've, I've been there at points in my life where I had a rebellious heart against God, and it hardened me and made things worse, not better. Here's a poem written uh, by, I had his name. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'll give him credit later. It says, beyond unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer, let me wrestle, and he will perform when Christ is in the vessel I smile at the storm. Isn't that awesome? So you're either in a storm or have recently been through a storm or about to go in a storm, right? You can smile at the storm if you know Jesus is in the vessel. If you will realize he's using it for your protection 
or you're for, for your correction or something else, but how you respond will make all the difference. It'll make you either bitter or it'll make you better. Matthew 12, 41 says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So Jesus is preaching to his people saying, hey, you got me right here in person and you're not even believing. The Ninevites didn't even have the Messiah in person. All they have was a, a, a hard-hearted racist prophet and they repented. He said, so God, they're going to rise up and say, hey, we repented. What's wrong with you? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying God sent a prophet to the people to repent. And I'm even better than that. I am the prophet that I'm here to the world to call the world to repent. That I am the greater Jonah. So the disciples first storm was for demonstration. So we've got protection, correction, and now we've got demonstration. God might not be protecting you from something or correcting you from something, but maybe trying to show you something or demonstrate something. Mark 4.39 says, And he was awake and rebuked the wind and the sea. And this is, remember, Jesus sleep in the boat, okay? He says, Peace, be still, and the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. I mean, it was placid sea. It was like the most beautiful day after that, instantly. And it says, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, Jesus, by calming the storm, by putting him in the storm in the first place, in the boat, but then calming it, was showing them who he was. And God may put you through the storm just to show you who he is, how powerful he is, how loving he is, how kind he is, how merciful he is. God wants to demonstrate himself to you, and sometimes he uses storms to do it. Paul's last storm, again, he was in four, uh, was for redirection, was for redirection. You know, many times we're going through life, and we think we're going this way, and God wants storm to turn to go in a little direction. We think we've got our life mapped out, we've got our one-year goals, and our five-year plan, and our 10-year plan, and God says, no, 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 no. <laughs> Here's a storm, we're sending your life in a different direction, not necessarily because you're doing anything wrong, but just God being God wants to reshuffle the deck and take you in a different direction. Acts chapter 27, talking about the fourth storm that Paul was in, says there was a centurion, Paul's under arrest, he appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen, hey, I don't trust you guys to give me a fair trial. I want to go all the way to Rome for my trial. I can do that as a Roman citizen. He says, so therefore the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, Rome, Italy, and put us on board. And we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of, uh, what's a lee? Okay, good. I didn't even bother to look it up because I knew I had Lauren, my own commentary here. You know. So that, say it again. What is it? It's like the downside of the Okay, good. All right, so the Lee of Crete off Salmon, and running under the Lee, thank you, <laughs> a small island uh, called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So they're sailing here, but they, they have plans for Paul, but God's redirecting their plans. Let me ask you a question. Is God right now redirecting your life? A year ago, did you think your life was going th this way, the way it is now, for better, for worse? You know, I, at, when I was at the previous church, and it's funny, this happened to me twice, uh, the plan was for that pastor to retire and for me to take over and be pastor in a church in Dickinson. 
right there on I-45. And that was our plan. For, I thought I was going to retire there. Well, God brought a storm into our life and totally redirected our path. And here we are. And I'm very thankful to be here. I'd rather be here than there. So this is good. But it, 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 I was in a comfortable situation. I liked where I was. Everything about I was great. And it, it was, and as far as ministry goes, relatively speaking, it was easy. And so Gary wasn't going to move out of that situation unless God stirred things up, stirred up the nest to push me out of that situation. But I'm glad that he does, and God redirects. So the disciples' second storm, the, so they, we just talked about their first storm. Now this is the second storm. They're in the one we're here in Mark chapter 6. Feel something to and when he saw, Jesus saw, because of the full moon, that they were making headway painfully, the, the wind was against them, and it was about the fourth watch. Now, soldiers would keep watch, and even sometimes it's, we've read that what shepherds kept watch over their flock. So what they would do in order to take turns sleeping, they'd say, okay, I'm going to take watch from six to nine. You guys eat dinner and then go to bed. And then someone else, will, I'll wake you up from nine to midnight. You'll keep watch, second watch. Then when you're ready to go back to bed, at midnight you'll wake up someone else and he'll do midnight to three, third watch. So now you tell me, the fourth watch, what time is it? Between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Between 3 a.m. when it's really dark and 6 a.m. when the sun's about to come out. This, somewhere in there is when all this is happening. Now, just pause there for a second. Mark doesn't say that just to throw in some random number. Jesus says, at, when the sun went down, you guys get in the boat and go. He goes up to the mountain and pray. And at night, he's watching them. And he sees that they're rowing and rowing and rowing. And what should have been about an hour and a half rowing four miles took them till past three in the morning. And Jesus is watching all this. And you may be in times where you're facing hard winds against your life. You're like, Jesus, do you know that what I'm going through? And Jesus is like, yep, I do. I can see it all from right here. <laughs> keep going. Keep rowing. Keep rowing. You're doing good. Keep rowing. They were making progress painfully. And Jesus wants you to do that because that's, again, what makes you stronger. But he came to them. And Jesus will come to you in those difficult times. It may not be in the first five minutes of it or in the first five days or five months of it. But in his timing, which is perfect, amen, his timing is perfect. He will come to you, and he will comfort you. And this time, he doesn't just come to them like another boat. He could have gotten another boat and had some people help him row out to him. He walks on the water, <laughs> doing what Jesus can do. And, and uh, he's doing something pretty amazing here. And it says, and he meant to pass by them. Now, I've read this passage for years, and this is what I thought. That there, the piano's the boat, okay? And, and Jesus is... Uh, is walking, and sorry, Matt, if I'm taking you totally off camera. And so he sees them there in the boat, and they're rowing. And Jesus says, it says he meant to pass by. So Jesus is like, what's up? <laughs> that's not what it's talking about. I thought for years that he, just, he was just going to walk by and say, hey, what's up? You know? But that's not what it's talking about. Does this phrase here, he meant to pass by, does that sound familiar? Especially the words, pass by. Let's look at the scripture. Let the scripture interpret itself. Um, in Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, Moses said, Show me your glory. Right? And he says, Well, it doesn't exactly work that way. I don't want you to die. So behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, 
I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Because if he saw God's full glory, it would kill him. Just seeing partial glory made Moses' face glow so much that he had to put a a veil over his face because people are like, hey, Moses, unplug there. Man, that's too bright. But it says that he will do it until I've passed by. And that's not the only time it says that. In 1 Kings 19.11, it says, and, and he said, go, Elijah, you go out and stand on the mount before him. Because Elijah, he remembers all these amazing stories of Moses, how Moses was the greatest prophet. And Elijah's like, I want to be a great prophet too. And Moses said, show me your glory. So you know what? I'm going to say, God, show me your glory. And so he's thinking God's going to put him in the cleft rock and it's going to be this amazing experience again. And, and says, okay, here's what you do. I'm going to tell you the same thing I told Moses. You go out to a mountain there. And many archaeologists think it was, if you read the scripture carefully, you look at that this was the exact same place Moses experienced this. And it says, and behold, the Lord passed by. But this story was different. There was like great firestorm. There was earthquake. There was all kinds of stuff. And it says, and God wasn't in the fire. God wasn't in the earthquake. God wasn't in the storm. God was in the whisper. God whispered to, to Elijah. He said, you know what? The way I show you my glory, it's not going to be the same way as I did for Moses. You're different. Moses is different. God will show you his glory as, as uniquely as you're unique. Don't ask for the same experience that your grandma had with walk with the Lord. You have your own walk with the Lord. Don't, don't try to walk with the Lord like Pastor Gary or Pastor Stan walks with the Lord. You have your own walk with the Lord. God will reveal himself in his own unique way in the Word. And that's what I love about Life Group is we will all talk about what the Scripture is talking about. And there's not different meanings of Scripture, but there are different viewpoints on Scripture. And Larry could say something about Scripture. I'm like, man, I never knew that before. And the things that, we, that God brings out in Life Group. And so here, when Jesus says he meant to pass by, and his plan was just like God passed by Moses. And just like God passed by Elijah, Jesus is passing by the disciples in the boat to reveal his glory. So let's look at this even farther. So Jesus could have calmed the wind. We talked about that, right? But he chose not to. And he, chose, he does choose sometimes because when things are working against this is when Jesus reveals his glory. It's in your hardest times that God shows himself most faithful. There probably isn't a person in this room that say, oh, I remember back when life was perfect. That's when I really was walking close to God. I guarantee you we could have story after story after story, me included, of when I was at my deepest, darkest times when God made himself real. God's good though, isn't he? He doesn't let you suffer more than you need to, but he, he does make us go through difficult windstorms to make us stronger. It says, but when they saw him walking on the sea, so he's passing by, okay, they thought it was a ghost, okay, which let me just clarify, because the Bible mentions ghosts doesn't mean the Bible endorses ghosts. It's just saying that's what they thought, and guess what they were? They were wrong, okay? So don't get into saying, well, the Bible even talks about ghosts. No, when you die, where do you go? You're to be at, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, somebody I know recently was talking to a, uh, what do you call that, medium, about someone they loved that was dead, and they said that they're still around because they're trying to resolve some problems. I'm like, that's baloney. That's just not true. So people can believe in ghosts, and even the disciples were superstitious enough to believe in ghosts, but it doesn't mean, doesn't mean that they were. And they cried out. And I wonder, what did they cry out? Get away! Get away, ghost! You know, or that, I don't know what they're crying out, but it goes on to say, and says, for they all saw him, 
12 of them, and they were terrified. Now, wait a minute. Shouldn't seeing Jesus make you be excited? And it was Jesus, but because they're not seeing the real Jesus because of the storm and because of their superstitious beliefs, they're terrified. And let me tell you something. When life gets hard and you become terrified, you're not seeing the real Jesus. You're you're seeing a Jesus who says, well, if he really loved me, he wouldn't make me go through this. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible says, because I love you, I want you to go through this. Okay? Whenever we're terrified, it's because we're not seeing Jesus for who he really was. And then there's that favorite word again. Immediately, he spoke to them, said, take heart, be encouraged, because this was a heart problem. So be encouraged. And what's interesting, all this, most of the uh, translations say, it is I. And that's not what the language really said. And if they had really pulled in the context of this is him passing by, like he did with Moses, and like he did with Elijah, they would have interpreted it right because what it really means is it is I am. Now, you know that phrase, don't you? Do you see what's happening here? Moses sees a burning bush and he's terrified and he falls on his face. And God says, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. And he says, I want you to go back to Egypt. He's like, what? I've lived out here peacefully with my new wife and family and great father-in-law watching sheep. And I'm fine with that. I've been doing that for 40 years. Don't change my direction of my life. And he's like, no, no, you're going back to Egypt. <laughs> you know, remember that place where you killed a guy and they wanted to kill you? Yeah, that's where you're going to go back. You know where all those slaves were? You're going to go back there and you're going to set my people free. And he's like, but they got all these gods up there. And I, and I have to go before Pharaoh, who's the most powerful man on planet Earth right now. And what am I going to tell him? You're going to tell him, set my people free. Well, who should I say sent me? He says, I am that I am has sent you. The great I am, Jehovah God, sent Moses. And now Jesus is the greater Moses, but he's more than just the greater Moses. He's saying, hey, don't be afraid. The great I am is here. Is that not powerful? That's what Jesus is saying. Because the, the, uh, the, the Greek word is, is ego ame, which means I am. But because we don't talk around saying, well, if you walked in and someone said, hey, who's there? And you say, oh, it's just me. You wouldn't say, it's I am. Because that's awkward English. So the translator's like, well, what's the M there for? We don't, that doesn't make any sense. We don't talk that way. But Jesus does. And then again, they, they, the translators could have made that a little bit better. But anyway, so Moses is in this situation before the great I am. And Jesus is saying, the, the, the bush that was burning but not consumed, that was me. That was me. I'm the one who spoke the worlds into existence. I'm the one that walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. I'm the one that was the burning bush. I'm the one that gave the Ten Commandments. I was all those things that Jesus Christ is one with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the great Holy Trinity. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They're like, wait a minute. What are you talking about? You're not even 30 years old, and you're going to say you were before Abraham? Because Abraham, he says, I knew Abraham back in my day. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? He says, yeah, before Abraham was, I am. For they did, and here's why they were terrified. Verse 52, we're back in Mark chapter 6. Because, that's what the word for means there, because they did not understand about the loaves. Now we're pointing back to the loaves again, as in that was the greatest miracle that showed who Jesus really was. If you understood the feeding of the 5,000, you knew Jesus was God with us. And there it's when they're like, oh, he really is the prophet. But 
Many people in the crowd understood that, and the disciples didn't. Jesus is saying, if you, got, if you really got what was happening with the feeding of the 5,000, you wouldn't be scared right now. And let me just tell you something. When I get scared, we all get scared. The, the cure is not to make the problem go away, but to know Jesus better. And if you know Jesus better, you know that he's going to get you through this. It doesn't say, yea, that I walk around the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> it says, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because why? You are with me. And if you really believe Jesus is with you, then you will be able to bear through anything. Let me just tell you this. It says that they didn't believe that because their hearts were hardened. There's, there's two things that will harden your heart. And there's probably more than that, but we're going to talk about two this morning. Number one, sin will harden your heart. Sin will harden your heart. Exodus 9.34, it says, But when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He said, yeah, you can let your people go. Wait a minute. The weather report says no more hail and fire from heaven. No, 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 forget that. Stay here, stay here, stay here. And he's sinning, rebelling against God because it looks like the consequences for his sin have stopped. So he's going to harden. Let me just tell you something. You, you and I struggle with sin. Hebrews even talks about having a besetting sin. And we could talk about that, you know, that some people struggle. Like for, for some people, money is a big temptation. For me, it's not. I'm like, I don't care. I could care less. And that's not patting myself on the back. I have my other really big, serious struggles. But there's some things that people struggle with that other people don't. And that's why, you know, we, we tend to do. We tend to judge them because of their sin, because that's no problem with you. But we tend to be really easy on ourselves for our sin, okay? But whatever you're struggling with, negativity, gossip, lust, greed, envy, whatever you have, it'll harden your heart if you don't, if you don't let God get a handle on it. It'll get to where, if you remember the first time you struggled with that sin, man, you went back into your room, you shut the door, you got on your face, you just cried and cried and cried, just could not believe you did that. But the next time you did it, maybe you cried a little. And the next time you did it, you're like, ah, I need to stop that. And you know, what's happening there? Your heart is getting hard. Be, be very, very, very careful. Sin will harden your heart. Stubbornness will also harden your heart. Stubbornness will harden your heart. 2 Chronicles 36, 13, Zedekiah also rebelled against the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And what God, God was using Nebuchadnezzar to, to discipline him here. It says, who had made him swear by God, he stiffened his neck. That's a phrase for being stubborn. Like, you're not going to tell me what to do. And by doing that, he hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. You ever had, you know, you ever had discipline one of your kids and they go, Ugh. you know, I, I, with having nine kids, I saw different personalities in each of them. And I had one son, he would do that. You'd spank him, be like, you know, bring it. You, know, he, you, you might have to hit him a bunch of times. I had one, my one daughter, Jessica, my biological Jessica. I could just look at her saying, Jessica? And she'd go, and she would just melt. And she'd just cry. I didn't have to even swat her once. I just could just look at her the wrong way. And you know, we, we have that way. We need to be where if God just looks at us the wrong way, we're like, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. And not just buck up and try to rationalize and explain. Jesus shows in this situation that he is the great I am. And there are seven times in the New Testament where he uses this same phrase, I am. And I want to just go through them quickly. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you have a hunger for something that just seems like you're not satisfied with life? Jesus is the bread. It says, I am the bread of life. 
John 8, 12 says, again, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You feel like you're wandering in the dark, bumping into everything, and your life's going nowhere? Jesus is the great I am, the, the I am the light of life. John 10, 7 says, so Jesus said again to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You know, shepherds would take their sheep out into the fields and graze by day, but at night they'd bring them back up to the top of the hillside and they'd have a gated-in area. And there was one door, and there, and there was one, I should say there was one entrance, but there usually wasn't a wooden door on it. The shepherd would stand in the doorway and get on his knee, and, and as all the sheep were coming in because all the food's in there, he'd let them in one at a time, but he'd take his rod and his staff and rub over them and make sure there was no pests on them or some wounds that maybe they got, or snake bite, and he would do that. He would anoint them with oil, then he'd let them in. Next sheep. And one at a time, he'd let them into the sheepfold. And there wasn't a wooden door. The shepherd himself was the door. You weren't getting in the entrance if you got through him. And Jesus is saying that you are not going to get into heaven unless you go through me. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That is not a politically correct statement today. We live in a pluralistic society that, hey, Buddhism, Islam, whatever, atheism, whatever goes for you, you find your truth and we're all good. Don't tell anybody that your way is the only way. That's arrogant. That's, that's you know, all these other things that are not politically correct. But I'm telling you, the truth is Jesus is the only way. That's not my words. That's Jesus' word. And he's saying, if you want to get into the sheepfold, you have to go through me. I am the only way. John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. Not only is he the entrance into the sheepfold, he's the shepherd that's there. And he says, and what does he do? He lays down his life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Every single person in this room is going to die someday. If you don't know Jesus personally as the great I am, the resurrection and the life, you will spend eternity without him. John 14, 6, as I quoted earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by, uh, except through me. Jesus is your only hope of salvation. And in John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the what? The branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You've been, have you been trying to do it apart from him? How's that going so far? How's that working? And if you are abiding in him and you're walking with Jesus, you should be bearing much fruit. Have you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the great I am? I would ask for everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes if you don't mind. I would love for you to pray. If you know for sure you're saved, you can pray and thank God for your salvation, for being the great I am of your life, for being your shepherd and your salvation. But I also want you to pray for those who don't know him. When Jesus preached, he preached hardest to religious people because they thought they were saved and they weren't. They thought because they were so good and so righteous and did all these religious things, they thought they were good. Religion will not get you into heaven. Only Jesus will. Do you know him personally? Has there been a point in your time, in your life, when you realize you were a sinner who deserved punishment, but realize that a loving Savior took your punishment on his cross, the cross that should have been mine, the cross that should have been yours, do you know him?
If not, why not right now in faith, just reach out to him in your heart and just accept him as your Lord. Give him your life and trust him to save your soul. Father, thank you so much for Jesus walking on water and revealing to us who he was and who he is. And Lord, I pray that we would see him so that our hearts would not fear, but we would know who he truly is. We thank you for what you're doing in our church. I pray that we would not keep this good news to ourselves, that we would go out into our community, to our workplace tomorrow, to our schools and our neighborhoods, and we would share the true message of who Jesus really is. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, if you made a decision, whether you're watching online or here in person, to trust Christ, amen, please let me know. I'd love to talk to you about your next steps as a new believer and a child of God. We are going to do question and answer. Tori, would you mind helping me with that? She's going to use this mic right here. It's live. Good deal. So you could text those in. Um, if we don't get to your question, you text it. It's probably because of the reception in this building. So feel free to raise your hand. Um, we're going to probably get an extender or something so we can get a uh, better reception in this building. Um, so let's go here. Let's see if there's any questions. Yeah, here's the first one right there. When our pets are at the end of their life and suffering, we euthanize them so they don't suffer more. Why don't we do the same for people? What scripture instructs us in this matter? Wow. Great question. I haven't gotten that one before. Have, I've heard, of, I've thought about this, but not on Sunday morning. Okay. So that being said, yeah, we need to start killing some old people off. No, just kidding. Just kidding. No, no, no. Being harsh there. Um, okay. So because there's a main, see Lauren, sorry to offend you there. <laughs> um, how did Lauren know he'd be the first to go? I don't know how he figured that out. <laughs> anyway. Um, so the difference is we have a soul and animals do not, okay? Now, and we could, and actually theologians who are much smarter than I to disagree on what, where the soul is and the spirit begins and all that. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing the between soul and spirit. Only the word of God can tell you the difference between the soul and the spirit. And again, people can disagree on it, but there is a distinction between the two. We just don't know where the overlap is, okay? But Ecclesiastes says that a dog has a spirit. I have two dogs. I love my dogs. I'll be very sad when they die. I know when my dogs are happy. I know when my dogs are sad. I know when, my, I know when Duchess has done something wrong because she's over in a corner somewhere and doesn't want to make eye contact with me anymore, okay? So they act like people in that regard, but when Duchess dies, her soul does not go to eternity, okay? Yours does. And you, have, you are imago Dei, which means you are created in the image of God. And so therefore, I'll just speak for myself. Let's say I'm 83 years old and I am in a bed and I can't even change my own diaper. I can't even feed myself, but I still have my mind. I'm going to pray for you every last minute of my day that I can. And I'm going to pray for each one of my kids and grandkids and by then great-grandkids and there is something I can do. I can pray. And the prayer of a righteous man availeth what? Much. So you could say, well, Gary, you're not doing, accomplishing anything by being on that bed. And doctors will say, well, what kind of quality of life is that? 
There's a ton, a ton of quality going on there if I'm communing with the living God and Jesus Christ is making intercession for me and, and he's accomplishing much in the world. My, the lives of my grandchildren could be changing because of what's pra- those prayers happening on that bed. Okay, I think God allows us to get old and get past years where we can't do as much as we used to so that we really realize that we could probably do a whole lot more than we used to because of prayer. Man, you got two sermons this morning. So, why do we not euthanize people when they're elderly or whatever or in all that pain? Is because they still could be doing something. And think about this. What if someone is on their bed 84 years old and doesn't know Jesus? And we euthanize them. If they're still coherent, they can hear the gospel and get saved. Okay? So there's two really good reasons why we don't. My dog has no hope. My dog is not going to pray for anything. Okay? Unless you count begging for treats. That doesn't count, I don't think. And my dog is not going to tell anybody about the gospel. My dog doesn't need to be saved. So if my dog is suffering, yes, I'm going to put my dog out of misery. So I think that's my best answer to a really good question. Any others? Okay. Anybody want to raise their hand for a question? Rick Patterson. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad. I, I think I believe in the sanctity of human life. As long as someone is alive, it's up to God to take them. I'm not saying there's never a time. That's between you and God. I'm just saying uh, it, it, we need to respect life as long as we can. And it, it may be different deadline for different people. Like I said, if someone's in a tremendous amount of pain and all that stuff, I could see where you pull the plug, which is different. Life support's different than taking someone's life. Do you understand the difference between the two? Um, uh, is your question related to this one? Okay, ask it. So you said that you know you love to see if somebody's time to go, love's in a table. But what about when you go to great medical leaps to keep someone alive? It's like we're we're fighting God. God's trying, but we're stopping. Right. That's where the gray area is. So as long as we're respecting the life, I will leave that decision up to the family and honor that. I will just say, be cautious, though. So uh, approximately, how old was I? Wow, about 25 years ago, my father-in-law was on life support. Okay, he could not breathe on his own. He was very alert. I went in there and he shook my hand and squeezed it. And he looked at me like, would you pray for me? But he couldn't breathe. He couldn't talk because he had this ventilator in his throat and all that stuff. And a machine was breathing for him. And so I prayed for him. But, and, I, and, and we had the whole communication, like blink twice, blink once, thing like that. Very alert. But his lungs had just collapsed on him. Just could not work. And so they had him on his ventilator. And they only had him on the ventilator for a day. And this doctor came in and was adamant that you need to, Take him off the ventilator, let him die. Take him off the ventilator, let him die. And they were all like, okay, all right. And they're just crying and they're going along with what the doctor said. And I pulled my wife aside. I said, you talk, you're talking to him. He's looking you in the eye. He is trying to smile. He's blinking with his eyes, telling you stuff. Do not pull the plug on him. He is totally there. We've only been on the ventilator a day and we're going to pull the plug. Give it a chance to work. So she went back in there. She, I, I, I didn't want to talk to the family because it wasn't my place. I was just an in-law or an outlaw, whatever. And so she went back in there. She fought for him. They said, okay, we'll give it two more days, and then we're going to pull the plug. Every day he got better. He lived 19 more years and saw grandkids. 
I'm telling you, there's doctors who are like, yank it, pull the plug, pull the plug, just because they don't want to have to deal with it. And they, they start talking about quality of life. What quality of life is that? I mean, every single person in this room has heard, it, if not one, two stories where, oh, we're only given so many months to live, and here we still are. Doctors tend to give you the worst case scenario, and maybe it's part of their bedside manner to just prepare you for the worst. But we all know people who have lived way beyond the, 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 the time given to live. Mm-hmm. All right. Any other questions? All right. Good deal. Let's stand and praise God.